All right. Happy Giving Tuesday, everyone. We're really excited to be with you here today and um, celebrating our oceans again with Alexandra Cousteau, who is one of the founders of Oceans 2050. And thinking about Oceans 2050, it just sort of inspires you by the name, knowing that we can restore our oceans to their future glory by 2050. That's, you know, that's even in my lifetime at my age. So I'm pretty darn excited about it because I grew up um, by the ocean and really enjoying the ocean. And to me, it's just so special and so important to the overall health of our planet. Um, so Alexandra, you've been um, an environmentalist and an inspiration um, for over 20 years working um, and founding um, important organizations like Earth Eco with your brother in 2000 and just leading the charge to restore our oceans. So welcome. It's so great to have you with us here today. Thank you so much, Emma. Well, Alexandra, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in um, restoring our oceans and, and really knowing the science around how we can actually make this happen? Well, you know, the, the thing is, I was born into the ocean work that I do. Um, I, uh, my grandfather, of course, was a, a world-renowned ocean explorer and filmmaker. He invented scuba diving and started exploring the oceans back in the 1950s, right after the Second World War. And the oceans were largely intact then. They were abundant, they were diverse, they were full of life. And it was the life that he saw there that inspired him to go and make these films because he wanted to share that abundance of life with the whole world. And indeed, it was the first time that anyone had ever seen what was under the surface of the ocean. I mean, people didn't know that just 70 years ago, um, which is kind of hard to imagine now with all of our National Geographic and BBC Blue Planet documentaries. And, and you know, knowing what's there is something that we take for granted, but that wasn't the case back then. And my father joined him on expedition um, and started seeing the degradation of the oceans in, in the 60s and 70s. And they started to articulate this um, ethic of conservation for the ocean, this idea that we need to protect what we have. And that was a really good message back then because we still had so much of the ocean left. Um, and it, it, it started changing, of course, the way people think about the oceans, the way they think about their own actions. Lots of nonprofits were established, legislation and policy was passed. And um, people did, of course, become much more aware of uh, human impact on the oceans and that the oceans are actually finite. We can't just you know, take as many fish as we want and dump as much trash as we want because they, they are finite. Um, and, I, and I think that's something that, that we understand today. But over the course of my life, we have lost ocean every year. We've lost fish and whales and life in the ocean a little bit more, a little bit more every year. We've had net losses to the point where today we've lost half of our ocean, um, which is, is hard to believe that in such a relatively short period of time, we could empty the ocean of half of the life that lives there. But that is what we've done. And so it occurred to me after my children were born that they could be the generation of my family that writes the obituary for the ocean. And that was heartbreaking to me because I 
could swim before I could walk. My grandfather taught me to scuba dive when I was seven years old. And the oceans have always been um, so present in my mind and in my life and in my experiences. And um, I've watched them decline. I've watched the places that I loved as a child disappear. People ask me, you know, do I dive all the time? And, and the answer is I don't because many places feel like me to me, like they are filled with ghosts. And so I, um, there was, there was a time after my children were born that I, I was really concerned and really sad about this. And I called a friend of mine, um, Professor Carlos Duarte, who I think is one of the great marine biologists of this moment in time. And, and, um, and I asked him, I said, is it inevitable that my children will write the obituary for the oceans? Or is there a chance that we could bring them back to the abundance that my grandfather knew? And he said that actually it is possible. It's scientifically possible to rebuild ocean abundance by 2050. Um, and he was in the midst of writing a paper for Nature Magazine about it. And that for me was a turning point when I let go of conservation and embraced restoration as a fundamentally different pathway to a different future. Um, and so that's what we're focused on. And the more we work on this, the more hopeful we become that we can actually chart a new path to an alternative uh, future that is not a future where our oceans are dying and there's more plastic than fish and, and, and our children are watching the oceans just disappear. But that uh, between now and 2050, we can see or start to see net gains every year in terms of ocean life and ocean abundance. And by 2050, our children will live in a world where oceans are abundant again. And it's pretty exciting, actually. You know, it's extremely exciting. I mean, some of the the folks we've had on in the past have talked about restorative aquaculture and what they're mm -hmm. doing um, along coastlines and what they're doing by um, farming in a sustainable manner in the ocean. But you're you're going so much further um, than that. You want to tell us a little bit about um, the different you have five recovery wedges for the oceans. Shall we um, delve into each of those? Sure. Well, um, you know, the first one that we were looking at is is uh, ocean forests and ocean forests are something that we don't know that much about. And in a general sense, um, you know, we know a lot more about coral reefs or, you know, other ecosystems, mangroves, um, which are, of course, a type of ocean forest, but there's so many others. There's salt marshes, there's seagrass meadows, there's kelp forests, um, there's mangroves. There, there's these forests that are like forests on land, but, um, it, well, they're like forests on land in, in terms of the fact that they, they um, create habitat for biodiversity. Um, they oxygenate the water, um, like trees on land oxygenate the air. They sequester carbon, um, much like forests on land. They also protect coastal communities from extreme events, weather events. Um, they uh, deacidify the water because ocean acidification is a growing problem with uh, the climate changing. 
um, as a result of, uh, of carbon emissions. And those carbon emissions have this chemical reaction in the ocean that makes it more acidic. And so um, ocean forests uh, can actually reverse that. Um, so they have these extraordinary abilities to address many of the issues that we're struggling with. And um, the nice thing about ocean forests um, is that we can recreate a lot of those benefits by growing seaweed as a crop. And um, so our first project at Oceans 2050 was really to quantify the carbon sequestration of seaweed farms um, to understand their contribution and to, to mitigating climate change and to um, create a voluntary carbon protocol that would allow us to drive investment into seaweed farms as um, the best nature-based solution that we have in the ocean that we can scale. And um, the nice thing about seaweed farms is that they have all of these same benefits in the ocean that wild seaweed forests do, but they also have all of these benefits for the communities that grow them. You know, um, there's about 24 farms in this global study that we've been doing around the world from Canada to Madagascar to a 300 year old seaweed farm in Japan. And um, uh, those farms represent about 27,000 families who are living from seaweed farming. And of those families, 70% of the women involved in seaweed farming, 70% of people involved in seaweed farming are women, uh, which is exciting um, because it, it's really a way to accelerate the just transition and, and find ways to both rebuild our oceans and provide for these communities, many of whom are former fishermen who can no longer fish because of overfishing and are finding an alternative livelihood in seaweed farming that coincidentally helps to bring the fish back. So, um, so we see a lot of promise and potential in seaweed farming and, um, and are working to help scale that up through science and, and through um, carbon protocols and, and driving investment into helping to, to scale these farms so that we can, we can scale seaweed farming up to 1,000 times what is being done today without having a negative impact on the environment. Wow, that's so. There's a lot of promise there. And when you're um, when you're looking at the seaweed farm and you're bringing back more um, fish and more um, more diversity, how are you working with legislation to um, limit it getting overfished again as it rebuilds, or managing the the population within um, within the area that you're farming or the area that you're restoring? So that's a great question. And, and we need to be mindful that there's wild seaweed and then there's cultivated seaweed. And cultivating seaweed can actually help wild forests in part by um, you know, lowering the incentives to go harvest wild forests. So we're not advocating that people go wild, harvest wild forests. And that's actually a problem in a lot of places. So the more seaweed we're able to grow to satisfy the growing demand for seaweed, 
um, the more we'll be able to actually protect those wild forests and even find ways to help restore them. Um, seaweed is, is being used for so many things now, and we're doing a lot of innovation in the West um, around how it can be used. So for example, seaweed um, has long been used in food. That's something that the, the West doesn't really have a taste for outside of, you know, when you go eat it at a Japanese restaurant or a Korean restaurant or a Chinese restaurant. Um, but seaweed is now being, especially kelp, you know, you might've heard about kelp smoothies, um, kelp burgers. So people are starting to use kelp in a variety of ways, which is great because it's very healthy. Um, it's also being used as an industrial feedstock for plastics plastic alternatives that are biodegradable. It's being used for cosmetics and nutraceuticals. And um, they're even doing a lot of research around using it for biodiesel. Um, there's people wow. that are um, testing out how it can be turned into phosphorus. Um, it's being used as a fertilizer in other places. So that's great. The more we can use seaweed and grow it in, a, in an environmentally and sociable, socially responsible way and in a way that's regenerative to the ocean, the better off we'll be because there's a lot of industrial feedstocks for things such as plastic that come from um, oil and gas and are, are mm -hmm. destructive to the environment. So we, we actually see um, seaweed farms as a force of good, a force for good. Well, yeah, especially if we're reducing um, and hopefully eliminating the destruction of any wild forests. Um, tell me a little bit more about other methods that we can um, move to restore our oceans, other things that we can be thoughtful about as, as consumers. Clearly, we want to we want to choose those solutions where plastics are being replaced, eliminating plastic from our, uh, our purchasing uh, profile is very mm -hmm. important. But uh, other choices that we can um, be thoughtful about just every day and what we do? You know, there's, um, there's a lot that's been said about reducing plastic in your life. And, and of course, that's really important. We are seeing the equivalent of two garbage trucks worth of plastic going into the ocean every minute of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. And that's just growing. So um, the, the plastic crisis in the ocean is very real. And um, it's not just impacting the ocean. It's also coming back and impacting us. You know, we found nanoplastics that are being consumed by bacteria. We're finding microplastics that are raining down from the sky in places that where there are no human settlements and there is no plastic on the ground. So plastic is literally becoming part of the water cycle and traveling around the world. Um, we eat the equivalent of one credit card's worth of plastic every week in our food and our, and our beverages, just microplastics that are, that are present there. Um, and, you know, that's having impact on our health. It's having impact on um, every aspect of, of our well-being. So we definitely want to reduce the amount of plastic in our life, the amount of plastic we eat food out of, the amount of plastic that we drink beverages out of, the amount of plastic that we microwave in, or you know, just reduce it as, as much as you can, because that's gonna have a direct benefit to your health and the health of your family. And when it comes to the oceans, of course, a lot of, you know, all of the 
plastic that's in the ocean started out in our communities, in our kitchens, in our homes, in our places of work. So um, there's a, a false solution that's been promoted by industry, which is recycling. And that puts most of the burden on us as consumers to recycle the plastic that they make. And I think that that's, that's actually a way for them to, to dodge responsibility for um, the design flaw of using plastic, which is a material that lasts for hundreds, if not thousands of years in a product that's meant to be used for a few moments. So we shouldn't be using single use plastic at all. We should find alternative containers for single use plastic that are single use containers that degrade when they're no longer needed. Mm -hmm. um, and until we're able to do that, we should find plastic free alternatives, uh, reusable bottles, you know, whatever it is, but we need to, to not just make those choices in our places of work and in our own lives, but I think support legislation wherever we can at the local state or federal level that um, seeks to eliminate single-use plastic from our lives. Yeah, and I think also, you know, having alternatives um, of disposal for other items, um, being able to have, like in Europe where, you know, you buy that bottle of Pellegrino, that bottle's going back and being reused, it's being washed and reused, it's not being recycled, it's being reused. And um, some of those alternatives are so important in our decision-making process and making um, disposal so much easier. And you know, we've talked about on our, our program before how here in Napa, we have a, a fantastic fantastic composting program with the city where we can basically in our yard waste eliminate 95% of our trash. If we're making great decisions with our, our purchasing and what we're doing at home, pretty much everything is, is compostable um, that we're yeah. bringing into our house and um, or recyclable, you know, because those wine bottles, we, we still have those um, <laughs> that we need to recycle. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, there, you know, that that's not the only thing, um, Emma, that, that we can make smart choices about. And I know at the, at the winery, you guys are also looking at sustainable seafood. That's another really important choice that we make in our kitchens, um, in addition to plastic. And I think that, you know, if anybody watched Seaspiracy, um, you, you, you've seen, the really ugly side of industrial fishing and and the impact that it has on our oceans, but also on the people who are are sometimes forced to work as slaves um, or as indentured servants, practically on these boats. Um, so there's there's you know a direct connection to um, the seafood that we find on our plate and many instances of illegal, unreported, um, and unregulated fishing, which basically means pirate, pirated fish. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the opportunity that we have um, to eat fish that is not going to, to be harmful to our oceans and not be harmful to other people and, and be good for our health is really going to um, mainstream when we have traceable and transparent supply chains with, you know, apps where you can trace the fish that you're buying um, all the way back to where it was caught and find out where it was caught, who caught it, how it was caught, um, what kind of fishing gear was used to catch it, um, whose hands it passed through on its way to 
your plate. And that's exciting because a lot of that technology is coming online. Oceana, in partnership with Google and SkyTruth, created the Global Fishing Watch, which tracks fishing boats around the world in real time. Um, there's a lot of um, you know efforts now to to track fish and 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 even industrial fishing companies that are um, fishing Chilean sea bass and you know Antarctic waters, for example, are creating apps that sh that have transparency built into their fish um, and where people are even using satellite images of the crew to make sure that the crew is legally employed and and um, that that the the working conditions are safe and they're being compensated. So there's a lot of work that's being done to shine a light on fisheries and make sure that that the fish that we eat is 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 uh, is traceable. And I think that's something that we can ask for. You know, buy fish from a fishmonger that has traceable seafood and can tell you who caught it and where it came from. And um, there's a lot of work being done on that. And that's exciting to me as well, because we'll never stop eating seafood. I mean, I know a lot of people are choosing not to. I don't eat seafood anymore because I know too much and, and I don't, I don't want to eat fish that's been pirated. Um, and I know that it's, it's quite likely to happen. Um, so I choose not to, but I know that a lot of people will continue to eat fish and it's, it's a healthy source of protein. And in a lot of parts of the world, it is the only source of protein for coastal communities that are addressing, um, food scarcity and, and food security issues. So I think the more that we can do to express a desire for traceable seafood, um, and, and really understand the story of the food that we're eating is, is going to help create momentum in that direction. Chefs need to demand it. Supermarkets need to demand it. And I really love what you guys have been doing on sustainable seafood as well. Yeah, we've been um, really fortunate to partner with the Ora King salmon folks out in New Zealand. And, and they do have a tag on every single fish um, when we get it. And we know exactly where that fish is coming from, that they're, they're farming there. And, um, and we've been really, we really demand that fish when we're having it and, um, and it's delicious, which is kind of an added bonus, um, and good for you. And, um, we've also been, um, working with Pacifico aquaculture here on the West coast with the fish that they're, um, farming, which has been, um, a nice success story and knowing that um, they're doing it in a, in a really um, thoughtful manner. But um, let's, let's jump over a little bit and talk about coral reefs. You know, I, I grew up, um, you know, always enjoying seeing them being told not to touch and, um, and seeing the beautiful fish and surrounding them. And they've really um, seen a lot of destruction um, over the last, you know, 30, 40 plus years. Um, what, what can we do to help with that? You know, the, the, the thing that's amazing to me is that the, the coral reefs are the most critical ecosystems in the ocean. You know, they, they are, um, possibly the most biodiverse and abundant ecosystem on earth. Mm -hmm. And yet we have no real incentive to financial incentive to protect and rebuild them yet. Uh, most of the, the work that's being done to protect corals is, is coming from philanthropy. And, and that's great. 
But I think that um, in order to really be able to not just protect what we have left, which is about half of the coral reefs that we used to have, um, but rebuild what we've lost, it's going to take um, it's going to take figuring out how we can create financial products around the restoration of coral reefs and and you know how we develop the technology that that will allow us to restore them at scale because most of the work that we can do now with with restoring coral reefs is hanging fragments of corals on lines and letting them grow out and then replanting them in the reef and hoping that they survive um and and we just can't rebuild what we're losing fast enough with that method so i know of of technologies that are in development now that allow us to to rebuild corals at scale and and to select naturally heat resistant corals and and corals that are resistant to increasing acidity um so that's really exciting and one of the things that we're working on at oceans 2050 is how we can um take that technology to scale and make it something where all of us can be participants in the restoration of corals in a way that feels meaningful and in a way where we can actually see progress. Um, and, and, you know, we'll be ready to talk about that maybe by the time our luncheon at the winery rolls around in August. Um, but it's, it, we're, we're tremendously excited about the possibilities that we're seeing um, in terms of funding coral reef restoration, deploying new technologies to, to um, rebuild them and seeing that happen uh, at, at scale, like really being able to rebuild them in a time frame that, that is months rather than years. Um, I, I think that's coming fairly soon and, and, and that's exciting to me because it's, it's the only way you know, and, and Carlos Duarte, um, who's our scientific director, he, he often tells me, he said, you know, I think marine biologists have taken coral reef restoration as far as we can. And now we need engineers, we need technologists, we need programmers, we need artists, we need, you know, all sorts of other talents and skills and, and, and um, ideas to figure out how to do this. And so we've been bringing those talents together um, to, to think about how, how we can rebuild them faster than they can die. And, uh, and, and I think we're getting there. You know, I, I think you raised um, some additional really good points in that conversation is that, you know, we need, um, one awareness of people realizing what's below the ocean and what we're losing because that's not being seen. I mean, I grew up with your your grandfather and my my Jacques Cousteau books and and the program the films and just and seeing that and being in the ocean myself as a, a diver mm -hmm. from a young age and um and then to have it gone and to to go back and dive and there's nothing to see but sand in um places where we used to go that were were full of life and i think one there there's not an awareness because you don't see it every day vanishing like you see the trees being cut down or or additional concrete and you see 
um, your environment shrinking in the world that you, where you go hiking and so forth. And then there's the, um, the financial incentive to it. There's, you know, only so much that philanthropy can do, but philanthropy mm-hmm. needs to partner with, with industry and with government to all take a stand. And so, you know, working to, to bring those things together is really um, remarkable and, and very exciting um, to have you doing that. And I know Google has um, some interesting projects with their ex- um, projects mm-hmm. working on um, tracking of fish and and so forth, but um, you know how do we get that investment? Is it a, a financial incentive in carbon sequestration? Is it um, is it a carbon tax? Is it government? You know how do we get that funding and that brain power behind it? I think it's really a, a challenge. It is a challenge, and it's it's amazing to me that Oceans is the least funded of the Sustainable Development Goals. Like, that's crazy, and yet it is, even though it touches on almost every other Sustainable Development Goal. And when we look at how much we have to bridge, the, the gap we have to bridge, philanthropy alone um, will take us part of the way, but to to really be able to invest in the kinds of changes that we need, um, we need we need the financial sector. We need investors um, and businesses, and um, we need to make restoration into a business. You know. Yeah. So um, there's again a lot of people that are thinking about that, and we've been thinking about that, and um, and again, I'm I'm really hopeful that you know we can we can rebuild our oceans. I think that we have everything that we need. We have extraordinary technologies that we can deploy. We have digital platforms that allow us to take action at the touch of a button globally. And we have you know what Paul Hawkins calls as the largest movement in human history, which is the environmental movement, where people aren't gathered under a single leader, but they are gathered um, by a, a, a feeling of loss and grief for the environment and a desire to see it come back um, that, that unites them. And I think is a really strong driving force. We're seeing our youth rise up in Fridays for the Future and and and, you know, all sorts of other movements that are, that are taking place. So I think that there's, there's an interesting moment now. Um, and my grandfather used to say when asked how he was able to do everything that he did, that he lived in his lucky moment in time where all of the circumstances converged in a way that allowed him to do what he did. And it's true. If he'd been born 20 years earlier, or 20 years later, he likely wouldn't have been able to do what he did. And I think that we are entering a moment in time that can be our lucky moment in time where the technologies and the awareness and the the platforms and the potential is all converging in a way that can allow us our own lucky moment in time if we choose to take it. And I think, and and Carla says this a lot, that the the worst thing that we can do for our ocean is to have the belief that it's too late mm-hmm. to turn it around. 
I think if, if we think it's too late, it's it's game over. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, one of our themes that we have is in these Tuesday chats that you're you're kind of touching on is we're um, speaking with philanthropic entrepreneurs. And to me, that means that um, you care about a cause, but you're also approaching it in an entrepreneurial fashion. And to me, an entrepreneur is not just saying, um, well, this is what I'm going to do. You're creating your own reality. And I think often um, if we think of the magnitude of the problem, we'd never move. If we just mm-hmm. think we can fix this and we can keep taking steps forward, we can. If you start thinking that it's too big, too much, too late, um, then you are because you've defeated yourself before you've started. If you just That's say, true. I can make a difference and I'm going to start making a difference, um, it's remarkable how many other people will get on board and then you really can make that difference. If you if you wait to um, take action or you feel like nothing can be done, then nothing will be done. Um, you've just got to mm-hmm. step forward and go. And I think that that um, is kind of one of the most important messages we can share with everyone because, um, you know, it's not too late for the planet, for the ocean, for our climate and um, all of the decisions we make every day are so important, whether it's um, enhancing biodiversity in the vineyard or enhancing biodiversity <laughs> in the ocean, um, it's equally important. It's just, I can walk out and see that biodiversity in the vineyard every day. I don't have the opportunity to see it in the ocean every day, but it's heartwarming to know that it's there and can come back and um, and I can go see it when I put on my, mm-hmm. my tank and my mask. <laughs> Absolutely. And the thing that, that, you know, the really great news is that life comes back in the ocean so much faster than it does on land. The ocean is so productive. Um, and if we give it a chance, it'll, it'll, it'll rebuild, it'll regenerate. And there's a lot that we can do to, to help. So um, I feel, I feel like there is this, this moment starting. Um, I can feel the momentum building and, um, and it's, it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be doing this work. I, I think that's wonderful. I'm excited. Um, tell me, tell me some of the most meaningful successes or the things that are really um, kind of getting you pumped up right now, and and how um, we can help you with that. Well, um, you know, we're we're working on a whole suite of digital tools that will give people an opportunity to be directly involved in restoration in the ocean around the world. So that's something that we're we're working on and and getting ready to um, to share in the months to come. Um, we recently won a, the Keeling Curve Prize for our seaweed work, which was really exciting and and I think was a big boost to our team and to all of the seaweed farms that are part of our study. Um, and 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 there's a lot of interest around seaweed right now. And so one of the things that we hope to do is to help shepherd that in the right direction. Um, because I see, you know, the, the blue economy is accelerating and the blue economy is just a term that references how we make money from activities connected to the ocean. And so um, the blue economy can be about mining and overfishing and extracting, or uh, in which case, you know, it's, it's really gonna be game over for the oceans. Or the blue economy can be about rebuilding and regenerating and using seaweed farming as an example 
of, you know, the kinds of activities that can sustain people, that can support entire communities, that can advance this just transition that's so important, um, all while rebuilding ocean abundance. And, and I think that that's really the kind of blue economy that, that we hope to help shape and, and advocate for. Um, and that's what I mean by, you know, we have a path that we're on now where we talk a lot about conserving what we have and sustainability, even though sustainability is a word that's lost a lot of meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we stay on this path, thinking that we can change the outcome by doing more of the same, um, I, I think we're going to end up in, in a worst case scenario. So getting on a different path means getting a, a, an abundance mindset. It means being hopeful that we can turn this around. It means um, thinking about what we do in terms of contributing to the restoration of our oceans and um, mitigating the impact that we have, but also investing differently. Um, for example, you know, buying differently, looking at our supply chains, if they're connected to the ocean. Um, there's, there's a lot that we can do personally in different aspects of our personal and professional lives to to advocate for and to help advance um, this regeneration agenda. (laughs) Um, Well, we're so excited that you spent time with us today and um, we're really excited about your project. And I'm very excited that in 30 years, I'm gonna be diving in an ocean that's even better than the one I had um, when I was a child. Cause- um, You and me, Emma. I, I know it's possible and um, we're, we're going to be out there and um, and enjoying it and um, seeing it with, with new eyes. Um, we're very excited to be hosting a luncheon on August 19th, uh, 2022 for Oceans 2050 at the winery in Napa Valley. If you're inspired today to give $500 or more, please just note St. Supri in your donation and uh, we'll get your information and send you that invitation to join us for lunch um, at the winery in a, in a beautiful setting um, with some wonderful seaweed that's been uh, harvested and grown and, and lots of other delights. We've got some great sustainable um, seafood that is uh, grown on land in uh, California as well as other locations. Um, so we're excited to have you join us at the winery and um, please be thoughtful about your choices. Alexandra, um, anything that else that we can do that you last thing that you want to leave us with that I failed to ask you or a um, little hope and inspiration? <laughs> well, Emma, I, I think that we've we've talked a lot about um, what's possible in the future. And, and I would just ask that people keep that in mind. You know, it's important to know all of the bad things that are happening with climate change and our weather and so many other things. But keep in mind that um, there are a lot of people that are looking at how we can change how we do things and um, innovate new technologies and create new financial products and um, all sorts of things. Uh, that I think can change change the outcome. And when it gets hard to read the news and, and see what's happening um, in the environment and in the ocean that we love, um, remember that. And you can always um, 
come to oceans2050.com and see what we're doing or follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And um, I will be announcing more of these product projects that we're doing soon. And I think that, um, that it's going to be a fun ride. All right. Well, I, I hope I see um, your next award being a Goldman Award um, or one of those <laughs> other wonderful things, because that would um, that would help us get us to that goal pretty quickly. But um, congratulations on all the work you've done and um, the recognition to date. And we're very excited to have had you join us and know that um, you're out there leading the charge to um, to restore our oceans. It's really, really wonderful to have spent time chatting with you. So thank you. Thank you, Emma. Thank you.